Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining us in these high-altitude conversations, where we have the chance to talk to the decision-makers, the people at the top, the chairs and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organisations and indeed, often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something for you to reflect on and perhaps utilise or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers, and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today is a London-based New Zealander who graduated from Massey University and passed through companies such as Unilever, Dunlop and National Mutual on his way to the role of New Zealand Chief Executive for AXA at 40 years of age. He moved to Commonwealth Bank in Australia, where he was widely tipped to take the top role before shifting to the United Kingdom in 2012 to become Head of Retail Banking for the Royal Bank of Scotland Group. Just a year later, he became Chief Executive of the group, taking on a role that was publicly described as a wince-inducing hospital pass. The now state-owned Royal Bank of Scotland was a multi-billion pound loss-maker that had taken such a battering, the state was forced to bail it out to the tune of 45 billion pounds. Its reputation was in tatters, both in the UK and offshore. Just five years later, in 2017, our guest managed that business into its first operating profit since the bailout and is steadily rebuilding its brand image. It's been a daunting and massive restructure that would keep anyone awake at night. Ross McEwen, a warm welcome to High Altitude and a big thank you for taking time out to beam in and talk with us from London at such a late hour. Ross, first of all, as Senior Internal Executive and Head of Retail Banking for the Royal Bank of Scotland Group, you will have known the organisation was in crisis. So, so what were your innermost thoughts when you approached to look at this role? Well, the first thing was, um, did you have the background to actually uh, make a real fist of it? I mean, the bank uh, had ha already had four to five years of complete restructuring from being the biggest bank in the world, and my predecessor had halved the balance sheet. And the question now is, uh, did I have a good enough strategy? Did I back myself to actually lead this through what needed to be a massive uh, management turnaround uh, process? Uh, so, you know, you go into these things with a level of fear and trepidation, but at the same time, you do have to back yourself to, to make a real difference uh, to the organisation and, and believe you, you can make that difference as the, as the best candidate. So how long did it take you to make the call and say, yes, I'm going to do it? Well, first off, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to a process that um, you weren't seen as a serious candidate. Uh, because a lot of energy goes into applying for a, uh, a senior role and, you know, people would understand that, didn't matter what level, you know, you, you apply a lot of uh, thought and energy into the role. And uh, I wanted to have a had a conversation with the chairman first off to say, you know, was I seen as a real candidate uh, and a serious one? And we also had a very good conversation about my views on what the bank should look like. Because one of the things I really feared was that if I had a different view to what the bank should look like, to what the chairman and many of the board did, uh, it would be a train crash for both the board and for myself. And I made that quite clear. So the chairman and I at the time had a very good conversation. And I, I said to him, you know, I think this bank needs to be back here in the UK. We need to strip away a lot of the international network. Uh, please, do you, do you, you know, uh, that's how I think about it. 
um, please don't put me into the, the running for this if, if the board itself isn't going to be supportive. Right. So finally you get there and you're sitting in that chair and you get a full overview for the first time, I suspect. Uh, how bad was it really? One of the things that uh, I was waiting um, patiently to see whether I had the job or not, and later in the afternoon the chairman rang me and uh, called me over to his office and said, look, uh, I'm not too sure if this is good news or bad news, but you have the job. Uh, and it was it was one of those moments that sticks in your mind, uh, what have I just taken on here? And, uh, you know, it was from that day, you, you actually, you go into overdrive about what do I need to do now? Um, and what are the steps I need to take to make sure that we can clearly articulate a good plan going forward? Don't commit yourself in that first three or four months before you've got a very strong strategic plan and you've got people around you that are going to drive that plan. So uh, your mind does go into overdrive. <laughs> There's obviously huge public pressure and exposure and the staff on the, or the uh, newspapers would have been all over you. Media would have been everywhere, I mean, imagined, immediately on your appointment. Uh, must be lots of issues of publicity and scrutiny, board, staff, the public, in this case, government as well, uh, all of which comes with the appointment. How do you deal with that? And uh, does it affect the family? Well, it's an interesting one you talk about the family um, because when, when you're going through this process, one of the things that, uh, that I had to think about, because I was advised to think about this, how does it affect your family? I mean, we had two grown daughters over here with my wife and I, uh, you know, very independent young ladies, but and we did have that conversation as a family before. You know, I, I uh, went into the uh, um, the CEO um, role, uh, and we did, we had that conversation about how did they block it away? Because you know, this organisation is in the newspaper, if not weekly, daily. There is something going on in it, and there had been for quite some time. Seventy percent government owned. You are in the public eye all of the time, so you have to go into blocking out the fact that you know you as an individual versus the job itself, and that was certainly one of the things that I chatted to the, the um, my daughters about and also to my wife about. Uh, but how do you how do you actually block this out? And it doesn't matter to us, you know. It's we're a very tight family unit. But, right. you know, you've got a lot of people who are very interested. You know, they, they went through all of the old material about Ross McEwen. They picked up that I'd missed uh, accounting uh, 201 twice at Mason <laughs> University and I was better with people and I was with numbers and all of this comes out. But also they, they dig in as well. You know, they started making contact with my daughters, wanting comment from them. And, you know, that's the sort of intrusion you immediately realise you're in for. Uh, and it, you do have to brace uh, yourself and the family for that at, at the same time. When you sat down in the chair, what were the dimensions of the problem? I mean, size of the bank and uh, staff and uh, loss position, what were, what were the dimensions? Well, we started, we, we, um, when I took over, still in 38 countries, down from 50, but still in 38 countries. We had a balance sheet of $1.2 trillion. Uh, It was still a huge organisation. It was one of the globally significant banks in the world still uh, at the size. Uh, We were operating in all sorts of markets throughout uh, those 38 countries. We were one of the largest um, global transaction service businesses. We still had a very, very big markets business in the United States. Uh, You know, so we were one of the big, still one of the big players in the world. 
and we had 112,000 staff. We had a, a business in the US. We still had to divest a couple of businesses that had been agreed with the European Commission to get the funding to save this bank. We had to divest a number of businesses. So it was still a very, very large business. In my view, uh, and, and I did convince the board uh, and our major shareholder uh, and our regulator was to change the shape of this business dramatically. And, you know, to do that, we needed a team of people that would come along for that journey, not for one or two years, but for four or five years, who we could all trust each other to do the right thing, because it would not be an easy journey. And, and it's proved to be exactly the case. But the right decisions were made with our strategy nearly you know, five years ago, which was around bringing it back to the UK and the Republic of Ireland and having offshoots that supported our UK operation. Uh, so, you know, it was a very big transformation that we signed up for and an even bigger change for what is our markets business. It was, you know, uh, trading in many countries that had a very big US operation, still a very big Asian operation, and we wanted to pin it more back into the UK. And nobody, in my mind, has, has ever really brought down safely a markets business. Uh, and we embarked on that one in uh, late 2014, early 2015. So it's, it was a big, big change for this organisation. But as it's proved to be right, you know, it was the right thing to do. Right. So when you sat down on day one with this complexity of, of business problems and units and stuff, but how did you decide your priorities at the first page? Is there a formula? Did, what did you do? Well, I, I had a view in my mind, as I've said, that uh, we needed to come back to the UK and we need to be a much simpler and safer bank. So we started off with what did we really treasure? And when you've gone broke, when you've been the biggest bank in the world and you've got broke, gone broke, there are some very simple things that you have to pin yourself back to. One of them is making sure you're absolutely secure again. And I can remember a very uh, good colleague of mine who's remained a, a wonderful friend and counsellor for me, a chap, Murray Austin, who used to be with me back in the National Mutual days. I used to report to him. And he said, oh, I can always remember him saying, Ross, as a financial service organisation, there are things that you must hold on to absolutely dearly. The first is your reputation as an organisation, and the second is your financial strength. He said those are the two things that financial organisations must never give up on. And those things have rung true in my mind ever since. So I pin back to safety and security, making sure that our balance sheet and our liquidity were fantastic. We had to rebuild them because we were one of the weakest banks in the UK and in Europe. And we, we are still on a path of having to rebuild our reputation because it was completely tarnished. And when, you, when the taxpayer has to put £45 billion into a bank, you are always going to be, there'll be going to be lots of questions about what you did. And, and also what the organisation found itself uh, in a position of, we had so much conduct and litigation issues coming out of the past dealings even dealing back to 2005 and 2007 and even a little bit later. So there were all these issues that constantly were hissing into your reputation as an organisation. So we went back to what were the basics. We had to restore the financial strength, the capital, the liquidity of the bank. We had to simplify it dramatically uh, and we had to pin it back to being a really good customer 
Bank here in the UK and the Republic of Ireland. So those were sort of the three big themes that we've driven around, we've talked through, and we've kept coming back to even today. Those are the things we talk about with our colleagues inside the business, with our our shareholders, and also with our customers. And they've stayed with us the whole time. What what I did at the start was I got a team of people together because I had some views, but I wanted to make sure that I tested those very well with what was 20 um, reasonably senior executives in the organisation. They were not the senior executive team, but they were senior leaders in the business who we believed as a team we could trust because it was a massive change for this organisation. Did You mentioned the team. Did your select team, your key guys around you, did they sort of self-select or were they already there or did you make some significant change to them? We ended up making quite a significant change uh, to the executive team. I mean, I, I went in with the process with a very open mind about the executive team I started with, but there were some fundamental things that they had to buy into as we developed the strategy. One, we changed the organisation structure to a very strong functional model rather than the multiple businesses that we had. That in itself eliminated a couple of executives who didn't want to be in that sort of structure. So a couple of them self-selected out. Others self-selected out because they just didn't see that this was the long-term play for them as part of their careers. But what was underneath this organisation was a number of people who actually selected in and became senior executives. And one of uh, our top executives uh, was a, a young woman who was working three layers down in the organisation, running our we- uh, Western European operation, who was one of the 20 um, that was on the uh, review committee. And she actually shone through, and I put her into one of the biggest jobs in the bank. And uh, has she has worked out incredibly well. There was a chap in our uh, personal bank who reported to me I did an external search to replace myself and ended up going internally. Uh, There wasn't enough difference between him and the external parties and my viewers. I knew him very well, and he's proved to be a great leader of a personal and business bank. Uh, I got calls from people who who said to me, you know, I'd like to be part of this. Consider me, please. It's where I found my chief financial officer. He rang me, and I knew him from old days, and uh, he's, again, turned into you know one of the great uh, chief financial officers in banking, uh, not just in the UK, but I think globally. So you had these people who selected out, but also people who, who selected in and have grown in the job. And uh, what we've found is that, you know, people with great passion uh, who, who will work, you know, beyond the cause for the organisation, I think do as good a job as people who are A players who maybe uh, are just there in it for themselves. Right. You, you would have had in this, uh, to think about all these different channels that you had to report back into and the communication systems you needed to establish. Uh, how did you handle that? Did you get that exter- externally done or was it done direct through someone? No, we did. Most of it did us. We did ourselves. Um, uh, and it was a it was a big piece of development for me because I hadn't had a lot of involvement with uh, regulators, with government, uh, with our, with the treasury operation uh, in in the government, and I hadn't had a lot of exposure. It was one of the things that the board was probably a wee bit frightened about putting me into the job. But what you realise is that when you're in the job, that is your job to do. And I built I think some very strong uh, relationships with many many people both in the uh, Prudential Regulatory Authority 
the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, the government itself, our owner, the government uh, owned us through a company called UK Financial Investments, uh, and I built relationships with the chair and the CEO of that organisation. So over a period of time, I built, a, I think, a very strong relationship with people. But one of the things I said to our team is when we say we're going to do something, we do it because it's the only way you rebuild the trust in us as individuals and this organisation. And some of those messages are pretty hard messages to give, but we're going to give them and we're going to live with them. And, you know, when we say we're going to do certain things around our capital, we do it. When we say we're going to close out on businesses because they're no longer part of our organisation, we did it. We say, you know, so we, we use the mantra that, you know, when we say we're going to do it, we do it and people will build the faith and the trust in this organisation. And we've done that with uh, our regulators, we've done that with the government and we've certainly done it with shareholders in probably a way that many other executives have been uncomfortable doing. So, for example, for four years in a row, we gave a complete cost takeout target. And we said every year we'll give you this and we'll give you the target. And we gave it to them for four years and every year we beat that target. So what you built was a reputation of being able to deliver. But we also knew that we had to take the cost out to get this bank back into shape, to simplify it, and to get it back into a cost-to-income ratio that would you know, warrant people putting their money into. So again, it was around say what you're going to do, then get on with the team and make sure you deliver it up and people will actually start to believe in the organisation. Russ, with such a big investment at stake, uh, did government go around their sort of company and did you get the summons from 10 Downing Street on occasion to explain what you were doing with so much of their money? Well, what was interesting, right at the start um, when the, the bank got into difficulty and the government put uh, uh, $45 billion in, it was set up uh, as a commercial operation by the Labor government of the day, but with support of all the other parties. So it was always going to be run as a commercial uh, enterprise there were no government uh, members on the board at all. Our shareholding was owned through, a, as I said, a company called UKFI, uh, who we had a monthly meeting in as though they were the sharehold, a shareholder, uh, and we had conversations we would have with a normal shareholder. So they stayed at arm's length, and they made sure they stayed at arm's length. And I think I, I really respect the government for doing that, because it's very difficult when you're getting pushed and prodded for all sorts of things, and we were... You know, having to make big changes to this business, it must have been incredibly tempting for the government to have stepped in, but they didn't. They let us get on with the job. Uh, they knew what we were going to do. We reported back through UKFI uh, saying what we had done. Uh, and, and again, we built the, uh, the reputation of, of a, a company and a team of people that were delivering. So the, the, the involvement really uh, was very limited by the government. How's the board been over that time? Have you found it um, a really strong relationship and support from the board exercise? When I t took over, they had the, the bank had been losing money for five years. You know, it had it had been halved in its balance sheet. Uh, and and if you're sitting there as a board member, every so often you'd love to get some good news. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, for this bank, for five years. There wasn't any good news. And then the new CEO comes in and says, actually, we're going to tip all this upside down and we're going to come out of 38 countries and we're going to drop ourselves down to 12. And again, we're going to sort of take 40 to 50% off the balance sheet that you've currently got. It's like they are constantly thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I bought into here? Yeah. And the demands on that board were huge. And they still are because 
it has so many, so much change going on in it. In an industry that was changing monthly as the regulators had to get better control over the uh, the conduct of the industry. The industry started off with far too little capital, and so the prudential regulators wanted the industry to rebuild capital. So you were under constant pressure, both from a, a financial perspective and a conduct perspective, to actually do a much, much better job. And this is the board that's sitting there we're looking for every so often a glimmer of good news coming out of the organisation. And I do respect the job that they had because it was not a normal situation. And when you look at what's happening now, there's a renewal going through of those that were there for the last six to seven years to those who are coming in now. And they're seeing a completely different organisation. So the chair, the current chairman is doing a renewal of the board because it is a different organisation to even when I started four and a half years ago as the CEO that we have come through all of the change that we needed to. We're, st we're starting to feel like a more normal bank, still with some pretty big issues outstanding, right. but the underlying business is starting to perform very well. The noise from the past is getting less and less, still some quite big issues to deal with, but becoming less and less, and the results are starting to show through. And, and to me, one of the best results that we've seen in the last um, 12 to 24 months is that even with the big change for our colleagues inside this organisation and taking it from 112,000 now down to just over 70,000 uh, colleagues, our engagement scores and our leadership scores of these people is at 18-year highs. That's fantastic. And they, the scores are showing that they understand what we're doing. They understand the need. The leadership's doing what it should do. Yes, there are some issues we need, still need to address. But, you know, we're actually getting that the colleagues really are engaged in what we've been doing with this organisation. And to me, we, we can get the financial results and the underlying businesses there, we can deal with all the external issues, but I think to have your colleagues engaged after what was nine years of losses, and we finally got our first profit last year after a decade, <laughs> you can imagine how our staff felt about that. A semi-normal organisation started to emerge. And the board would have no doubt been delighted at that good news. Uh... Yeah, look, the, the board have been very pleased with the outcome to date. As I said, it's been very difficult for this board uh, with all of the conduct, litigation, restructuring issues that we've had to deal with that have made us a, a very, very public figure. And what about the balance sheet today? What's the balance sheet looking like today? Well, the balance sheet, we started at $1.2 It's down to about uh, just over $750 billion. So it's still very, very big balance sheet uh, in, in even global terms. Uh, it's, so it's, an, it's about the shape we'd like, like it to be. There's a few... Uh, assets will take off over the next two years, but we're getting into the shape we want to be, uh, the bank to be in. Our liquidity is very, very strong, uh, and and we have built that. And it goes back to my thinking about the stability and the security of this bank. Uh, nobody is questioning our capital strength or our liquidity, which is really important. But we've got a long way to go still to rebuild the uh, the, the reputation of this organisation. So, so there's still uh, the balance sheet, the half of the equation you talked about is fine. The other half is the reputation. How have you tackled that? Have you have any specific uh, programs? Well, we've been um, we, we, as we've reshaped the business, we've, uh, we've we've had the customer in mind throughout this, and this hasn't been easy because the industry 
has been changing as we've been trying to get ourselves back into shape. There's been a much, much faster move to digital with customers than I had ever anticipated six years ago when I joined the bank. You know, well over 50% of our customers just use the mobile phone as their interaction with us today. Uh, we've just had to go through a major program of branch closures uh, because the, the, the branch usage has dropped off over 40% since 2014. It's massive. So you're seeing all these big changes going on that are very hard to, uh, to, to manage at the best of times. Um, and, and we have the thing I found is communicate, communicate, and communicate. If it's bad news, put it out there. Let people know so that they can also deal with it. And, you know, we've got a resilient group of staff, colleagues in this organisation um, that, you know, we've built the faith with, that, that they understand when there are issues to be dealt with. Uh, we'll tell them about them and we'll work with them to, to get them done. What does the next five years look like, Ross? What, what's going to happen from here? Well, look, the bank is, is back in pretty good financial uh, situation. We've got a couple of uh, conduct uh, and litigation issues that I know that the bank will get itself through. Uh, we have to really uh, rebuild the, the pride uh, in our customers now in this organisation. And, uh, you know, that's the, the journey for the next five years. But there is a big uh, change going on banking globally that uh, more and more customers very happy just to use uh, their mobile phone to interact, um, to make payments, to even now buy products. Uh, you know, the other day I went onto our mobile app and I got a new credit card. It took me two minutes. <laughs> We're now doing, um, you know, for customers we know, um, you know, these are easy things to do. We, we can now have a, an SME loan for our customers in four minutes, uh, approved, funded the next day because we know who they are and the use of data in this organisation is pretty good. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of innovation uh, thinking going on inside the bank to keep up with uh, where the market is. So I think the future is very, very good for this bank uh, in a much different shape to what it started five and certainly 10 years ago. So what we're talking about is a transition from a global to a UK-based bank with um, countries that support its particular investments and, and transactions, I take it. Absolutely. That is really important for us. That that transition was very hard after you've been global to say to people, no, we're coming home. But it has meant that we've put all our resources into the UK operation. And it is a big business. It is still a very large business here. Uh, we're one of the major banks. Uh, we're the largest business bank in the UK. Uh, we have one of the best private banks. We have a very good markets business that we're restructuring. So we've got all the ingredients. And now it's a matter of uh, allowing them to get back and doing really good things with customers over the next five years. Right. Do, do, do you have a view of what the balance sheet in the bank will look like in that five-year time with the transition of digital and other things? What will the size be and what will, uh, what will it be doing? Well, I, I, I think we've got the balance sheet probably to pretty close to where we want it to be. Uh, you know, at, uh, £750 billion uh, is still a very large balance sheet. It's a matter of making sure that uh, we're now starting to focus on the returns for our shareholder as well right. uh, and making sure we're in the markets that we can succeed at uh, and, uh, you know, coming out of areas that we just don't think are the future for this bank. We're investing very strongly. You know, we're not shying away from investment. Right. Um, you know, this year it's well over a billion pounds we'll be investing in this business. We did the same last year. We'll probably do the same next year. So that's uh, a pretty big pool of investment we're putting in. And that 
uh, we do expect to get really good returns out of. And we're also looking at other areas of, uh, of change that focus on you know, what our SME customers want and also our, our personal customers as well. So even with the difficulties that are sort of legacy, you can see profitability going forward? Now, Cam, we've, um, the bank um, has made for the last, I think it's about 10 or 12 quarters, about a billion pounds pre-tax uh, profit. Uh, so the, the, the underlying engines of this bank are outstanding. It's just been the noise and clutter that's been, you know, restructuring it and, uh, uh, and paying all the fines. If I came at you again, Ross, and, uh, and you were where you were originally and you looked at the task knowing, knowing what you've done with it, would you do it? Look, I, I, I think actually I probably would. Uh, <laughs> we're all very good in hindsight, and it has been, I think, a lot, uh, there have been a lot more issues we've had to grapple with than I ever anticipated at the start, and I think that the board would ever have anticipated. Uh, but one of the great things is uh, just about all of the team I started with, Bar 2, are still with us and, uh, you know, are really engaged in the task. So how do how the family cope with this? Has that changed, has that changed you? Because you've probably worked 24-7, I suspect. Well, I think one of the, the things that I realised early on is you can't work 24-7, even these jobs. Whilst your brain is on all of the time, um, you physically can't do that. And I, 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 I diligently try and get the Saturday and Sunday for myself and my wife and if the kids are around, you know, that is really important just to clear your mind. But you, but in any of these big jobs, you cannot be away from them. So, you you know, at the weekend we were out, out cycling and I find myself constantly thinking through the issues for um, this week, you know, the appearance before a Scottish select committee um, today. You know, the, the, we've got meetings on this week. You're constantly thinking about these issues. Yeah. So as a CEO of any of the big businesses, you're never away from your business. But you do have to physically take yourself out of the space. Otherwise, I, do, I just don't think you last. And if you're looking at someone coming into something like this with your experience behind you, any sort of armour or weapons they should be carrying with them? Um, get a really good team around you that you trust and uh, that they trust you. Uh, never say, put things out there that you can't commit to and you won't deliver on. Uh, take, we've just talked about the point, take some time for yourself. You do have to be a wee bit selfish uh, uh, every so often with yourself. And as I've gone through my five years, even now I'm, start, you know, I'm getting my uh, secretary to make sure that I'll get a Friday at home um, and it's usually the Friday before the executive committee or for the board so that you can just actually go back through the papers and, and be on top of them um, in, in a day that's not a weekend. And I think it just gives you a slightly different perspective and gives you a step away from the business so you can look into it rather than, than being all, always into it. Right. When you were out here at Massey talking uh, recently, I remember you seem to uh, exhibit a certain sanity and a sound outlook and a sense of humour that uh, I didn't expect after such a beating. Um, uh, and I was really wondering when I look at that and just thinking to myself, okay, what's next? Are you going to come back here and farm or what will you do next? Look, I, I, I don't know what we'll do next. Um, first off, I want to finish the, uh, the job that we started off here. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not convinced that I can really think about what the future is while you're still sitting in a job like this because yes. uh, it does consume so much of your time. But you also learn a huge amount on this job. I'd hate that to be wasted. But at the same time, I think it, you've got to step back at some point 
and pass the baton over. Um, still, we've still got lots to do, but you know, you do need to start then thinking about building of your team to make sure that there are internal candidates that could be um, the successes for yourself. And that's something that myself, I've been doing with my team. It's the board's decision, uh, but making sure that we've got candidates internally for this organisation because it's, you know, it's not, I don't own this organisation. This is a business that's been running 290-odd years, uh, and I'd hope it, after me it runs for another 290-odd <laughs> years. So it's not my business. Uh, it's it's owned by the shareholders. It's owned by the UK, and uh, we've just got to put it in great shape so it continues on. And that's what you think about. So the future, who knows? Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it'll be exciting. Ross, thank you so much. And, look, I really appreciate your time and, and uh, your thoughts and your wisdom, and we thank you for letting us chat to you and listen to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers, John. Thank you for joining me and my guest in this high-altitude conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well. <laughs>